You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 117 by Rudolf Steiner. Twelve lectures entitled Deeper Secrets of Human Evolution in the Light of the Gospels, translated by Christiana Bryan. This is Lecture 6, given in Stuttgart on the 13th of November, 1909, entitled On the Right Relationship with Anthroposophy. What has often been said in the lectures that form the last seven lecture cycles is no mere figure of speech. They correspond with a law of existence. In having completed a seven-year cycle of lectures in the spiritual scientific life of our movement, I venture to suggest that there should be a few moments of self-reflection in our striving, in our work. This work is only possible if a spiritual movement proceeds in such a way as to align its lawful inner principles with universal principles. Such universal aptness advances in cycles that can be reckoned in units of seven. We count seven planetary states, seven conditions within each of these planetary worlds, and so on. Similarly, in a movement such as ours, the number seven plays a part. In a certain sense, our quest over this time returns to its beginnings, in that much has been worked through in the meantime and incorporated into our work content. This striving returns at a higher level, above where it began, but this can only be successful if the deeper aspects of the subject, the legitimacy of its inner principles, has not been neglected. If you look back at how we have worked over the past seven years, you will notice something. This work has progressed with a certain regularity. What is being said is not exact to the day, but taken as a whole, this is the case. We can be said to have laid the foundations for our work in the first four years, during which we occupied ourselves with acquiring some knowledge of the human being, gaining a certain outline of the ways in which access to the spiritual world can be attained. Some time was also devoted to speaking of great cosmic connections, or what we may call testing the results of the Akashic Chronicle as it relates to world or cosmic mysteries. Those members among us who join this work later on needed, and will always need, to create the firm foundation for our endeavors that is essential for their eventual achievement. For it is by no means sufficient for our movement to advance in the right way, simply to assimilate what has been occupying us over the past three years. If you hold something of a rearward review, you will see that the truths and knowledge dealt with in the last three years have been built and enlarged upon, and this applies even to the factual knowledge, with which you have perhaps rather strikingly or shockingly been faced. If you seek to make a connection with the material we tended in our first four years, 
as it were the fourfold foundation of the entire edifice, you will see that even what was striking or shocking, what constituted great and comprehensive truths, was nevertheless closely connected with all that took place in those first four years. You will be assured of this connectivity if you review it for yourself. Our younger members would do well to feel the urgent need for a firm foundation to be deeply engraved on their hearts. Increasingly, care has been taken to furnish latecomers with the means of catching up with what has taken place in preceding years. Without such revision, it is actually impossible to keep up with progress. We need to take our spiritual scientific movement in the deepest sense seriously. In this connection, we may be permitted to touch on a theme, especially at this important time, a theme that addresses the ethos, indeed the entire spiritual mode of imagining. How can anthroposophists rightly relate to spiritual science? What is being said here will become clearer if we frame the question differently. Why is anthroposophy taught in the way that it is? Why is knowledge of higher worlds presented, knowledge that is the result of spiritual research and clairvoyant consciousness? Could this be done differently by starting, for instance, by giving guidance to individual people as to how they should proceed in their own inner life? Guidance as to how they could awaken higher faculties so that they could, through such suggestions, themselves have the opportunity gradually to ascend to spiritual worlds before hearing, as is now the case, about what are known facts in the spiritual world? This was largely the method once cultivated before the advent of our spiritual scientific movement in its modern sense of the word. For a long time it was said, There is no great advantage in someone stepping forward onto the world stage to share the results of spiritual research. So one would behave in as modest and reticent a manner as possible in relation to spiritual tidings. One would in fact limit oneself to setting a few rules as to how to develop the dormant forces in people's souls and would then basically give no more information then the individual could eventually discover for themselves. The question might now arise, why is this path alone no longer in use? Why, instead, are the results of spiritual research being shared as anthroposophy? This has not arisen out of any arbitrary personal penchant, but for good reason. We will understand all the better what we need to understand if we again ask ourselves, what does spiritual science actually convey? It communicates the facts and realities of higher realms, from supersensory worlds. It shares the results of what clairvoyant consciousness can research in those higher realms. Now it is the case that someone to whom communications of this sort are vouchsafed, and who is not him or herself clairvoyant, is initially unlikely to be persuaded by facts that can only be verified through direct vision. Such a person takes these communications in but cannot test them through clairvoyant scrutiny. 
Certainly that is the case. Yet it would be quite wrong to believe that the non-clairvoyant person receiving such material cannot test this material at all, cannot interrogate it. To believe this would be equally wrong. It is similarly untrue to assert that one can simply absorb the results of spiritual research on the basis of loyalty or faith. Any such communications would be most incomplete. Something vital would be lacking if they were to rely solely upon belief and claim. What is conveyed here is legitimately researched in an inherently rightful way, and this has often been reiterated, is verifiable with clairvoyant consciousness. If it is queried, however, and as far as I am concerned, even if only by a single researcher, once it has been uncovered and communicated, anyone can understand it, by engaging their unbiased thinking and their common sense, both of which are available to them here on the physical plane. We could well add, even if not all of those sitting here can necessarily check everything to the most rigorous standards, they can at least give themselves the chance of doing this, given time and capacity, which are merely capacities of this physical plane. Taking even the most complex issues, as touched upon over recent lectures, such as the incarnation of Zarathustra, challenging concepts associated with the fact that Zarathustra's astral body was transferred to Hermes, that Zarathustra's ether body transmigrated to Moses, nobody could claim that the person who has obtained these realities from spiritual research would expect anyone to accept such facts on the basis of blind faith? No, that certainly is not the case. Were someone to say, that's all well and good, but why would I trust a clairvoyant who claims all this about Zarathustra and his incarnations? I am going to check everything, using all means available to physical humanity here on the physical plane, everything that history tells us, everything contained in stone tablets, everything contained in religious records, all of this I intend to check with the greatest rigor. Someone of this ilk will say, Let us assume that what this seer says is correct, but does it accord with facts that can be externally verified? Then they would recheck everything externally verifiable, and would notice that the more they delved into detailed research, the more would they find facts communicated by the seer to be proven. Were the word fear to have any relevance at all in this respect, one might say that spiritual scientific research might potentially fear inexact testing. But it certainly has nothing to fear from those using all that physical research can yield. These latter will see that the more incisive their research, the more the facts concur with those communicated through seership. However, For less complex subjects, such as reincarnation and karma or life between death and rebirth, which lie closer to human ken, the only faculty anyone needs is unbiased, impartial observation of what life itself offers. The more one observes life, the more will one find that what the seer communicates accords with reality. In other words, there are ample opportunities to confirm 
that what has been won from supersensory realms is confirmed by physical existence. This is not something just to be lightly accepted, but something we should regard as indispensable necessity. We should test against life itself such facts as can only be verified by a few spiritual researchers. We really must stop perpetuating the idea that everything should be taken on trust and belief. No, accept as little as possible on trust and belief, but check, and check again, without bias, totally without bias. This, above all else, needs to be emphasized. The issue now is that when or if such checks are undertaken, they should be strenuous. They require thinking. They require of each to make every effort to find proof in the physical world for the findings of spiritual research. And here we come to a subject that we do well to discuss and which resonates with our first question. Namely, is it advisable or even necessary for human beings of today, alongside their essential training in pursuit of spiritual experience, which is justified, is it necessary or even beneficial to engage energetically with our normal means of acquiring knowledge, with the ordinary modes of thinking prevalent in the physical world? In other words, does the spiritual pupil do well to overcome the comfortable indolence they bring with them in such abundance from the unspiritual world? Do they do well to overcome their slothful habits by seriously expanding their thought world and using the very faculties that make humans recognizably human, even in this physical world, mastering their thoughts and putting them to real use? Does this pupil do well, above all, to engage in large bouts of study, particularly in cognitive modalities? It is actually quite difficult to teach present consciousness clearly and precisely what is implied by this activity. Someone wanting to make progress in an anthroposophical field came to me recently who also wished to school himself to think spiritual thoughts with ever more clarity. He wanted me to recommend some reading matter. By way of thought-schooling material, I recommended he study Spinoza's title Ethics to make him more capable of sharpening the contours of thoughts received in this transferred form. After only a few weeks, he wrote to me saying that he could not understand why he needed to study this book as it was a comparatively hefty tome, its narrative primarily aiming to prove the existence of God. He said he had never doubted God's existence and could not see the value of following protracted thought processes to prove it. You see, this is a typical example of the indolence with which so many approach spiritual science. They are quickly satisfied as soon as they have secured some faith. They shun the uncomfortable struggle involved in acquiring piece by piece imaginative content and themselves enlarging on it. Nothing more than blind faith is ever the outcome of an attitude such as this. You will see that everything ceases to be blind faith as soon as your thinking begins to be schooled it is not just greedily trying to develop forces leading to an elementary level of clairvoyance. Certainly, nothing said here speaks against striving to evolve forces hidden in the soul. This is good and valuable striving. On the other hand, 
What needs emphasizing is that in parallel with physical thought forces given us here in the material world, it is essential to train, however uncomfortably, those tools of knowledge that make us fit for creating our own sharply delineated imaginations and concepts of what we hear transmitted from higher worlds. One might easily believe that even the smallest degree of clairvoyance is preferable to however much sensible grasping of facts from the spiritual world. Someone might say, I have no idea why I am in this society where spiritual things are constantly being related. I would prefer to have, however tiny, a clairvoyant vision instead. I know a very educated theosophist whose heartfelt desire it is to stride beyond mere learnedness into actual vision, and who expressed it like this, only I could just once catch sight of the vanishing tail of an elemental being. Certainly that is quite an understandable wish. Yet that theosophist would never agree to renounce all the spiritual truths he had received in exchange for this glimpse, though even this could happen, that someone would give up everything spiritual they had learned in exchange for just one seer's glimpse. Holding such a view is extremely misguided and in every respect wrong. Because we live in times characterized as being an age of conscious thinking, as has often been pointed out, ancient Indian civilization developed a very different sort of consciousness, one reminiscent of dimly dawning clairvoyance. Only gradually have our modern faculties evolved, and we are the first in the sphere of earth evolution to join in the actual development of the consciousness soul with our faculties of human thinking. This is why it is so vital that spiritual science is drawn down from supra-sense worlds and that it appeals to sensible human thinking. We need to clarify the following differentiation. A simple visionary needs no special recourse to thinking. Their thinking can be very primitive, even though they may be able to see relatively far into the astral realm or even to some extent into the devakonic plane. They may be quite advanced and see much. The other possible case is that someone knows a very great deal about spiritual truths, yet sees nothing, is unable to see at all, is not in a position to see even the vanishing tail of an elemental being. This can also happen. Now, let us ask ourselves, how do these two sets of soul capacities relate to each other? Firstly, we have to highlight two things, not to be confused. Having something and being conscious of what one has. It is incredibly important to keep this in view. You will understand that question better if we add, you see, in primal times you were all clairvoyant, in common with humanity as a whole, because these were times when people looked far, far back in time, back to the very beginnings of time. And now you might ask, why do we not remember our previous incarnations? if at the start of time we could already look backward. This should have proved at least one fact to you. For example, the fact that you could previously recall earlier incarnations has not helped your present ability to remember your incarnations. You could raise the question, will it help our future incarnation 
if, in terms of memory, we now become visionary clairvoyants. You could focus on one fact, that the old clairvoyance has not helped you to look back in recollection today, because it is something you all once possessed. Why are so many people today unable to recall their previous incarnation? This is an extremely important question. A majority of people do not remember their previous incarnations because they had not, at that time, developed capabilities precisely of their self, of their I, capital, of their ego. Because it is not a case of having developed clairvoyant faculties, but whether or not what would have been visible then had been developed at all. However, clairvoyant human beings used to be, if they had not concerned themselves with specifically developing faculties of the self, of the I, in other words, the ability to think, the ability to differentiate or discriminate, which are the hallmarks of the human I on earth, that I was nevertheless absent in previous incarnations. Selfhood was absent. What then could one retrospectively recall? One would have had to see to it that a self-contained I was present in one's last incarnations. Everything depends on this. Only those people are able to recall their past lives who during those past lives worked at their means of thinking, logic, and their ability to discern. Such individuals can remember. Someone may have developed however lofty a level of seership, Yet if they did not work at their powers of logical thinking and discrimination, they will not remember their earlier life. At that time they failed to set the target at which their memory was later to aim. So you see that if one understands anthroposophy rightly, one should reflect that the capacity for painstaking thinking cannot be mastered soon enough. Now, you could maintain... If I became clairvoyant, those powers of logical thinking will have been mastered of themselves. That is not the case. Why have the gods caused human beings to come into being at all? For the reason that they could only evolve capacities within human beings that they could not have advanced in any other way. The power to think, to imagine something in thought in such a way that these thoughts are combined with differentiation. Such abilities can only be shaped on our earth. They did not previously exist and could only arise in that humanity came about at all. By way of comparison we could say, let us assume you have a seed such as a grain of wheat. However long you contemplate it, it will not germinate into a wheat plant. To do so, it needs to be planted in soil and left to grow, allowing growth forces to activate it. What divine beings possessed before the creation of human beings can be compared with that grain of wheat. Were it to exist in the form of a thought, it would first need tending by terrestrial human beings on the physical plane. There is no other way for thoughts sent from higher worlds to be tended than for them to flourish through human incarnations. Thus what humans think on this physical plane is unique and must complement such potentialities 
as approach from spiritual realms. Human beings are in fact essential for this, otherwise the gods would not have caused them to arise. The gods made possible the genesis of humanity, so that what they had previously possessed could also appear to them in the shape of thoughts formed through human activity. That this was even possible, that what descended from higher worlds could take the form of thoughts, would never have been possible had not human beings clothed these spiritual gifts with the contours of their own thinking. People who do not want to exercise their thinking on earth deprive the gods of something they have been relying upon, and they thereby fail in their intrinsically human task, their human assignment. They will only fulfill this mission in their incarnation when they undertake to work rigorously with their thinking. When one considers this, everything else follows from it. Such revelations and genuine facts about the spiritual world as can take root in the human soul do so in the most varied ways. It is certainly possible, and there are many cases nowadays, for some people to have visionary experiences without being clear thinkers. In fact, the majority of those who have clairvoyant visions tend to be diffuse non-thinkers rather than clear bright thinkers. However, there is an enormous difference in their experience of the spiritual world between indistinct and clear thinkers. It is a difference which I can express as follows. What is revealed from spiritual worlds impresses itself best into those forms of spiritual imagination toward which we can bring our clearest thoughts. Such thinking provides the best possible vessel. If we are not thinkers, then revelation has to seek alternative forms, such as those of a picture, an emblem, or symbol. This is the most frequent means of reception among non-thinkers. You will hear how visions are related in terms of symbols and portents by these visionary clairvoyants who are not simultaneously rigorous thinkers. This is all very nice. But we must become conscious that such subjective experience differs completely depending on whether the vision is received by a clear thinker or by a non-thinker. Non-thinking people will have visions in the form of emblematic symbols. This or that figure appears from the spiritual world. Let's say you see an angelic figure and some symbol expressing this or that such as a monstrance or a chalice. And you see this as a finished picture in supra-sensible fields. You can be sure that this is not reality, but an image. Even subjective visions of the spiritual world are experienced slightly differently by thinkers and non-thinkers. They do not instantly appear, ready-formed, as if shot from a pistol, but emerge variously. Take a non-thinking, clairvoyant visionary and another who is able to think clearly and who might both have the same vision. In one case, the non-thinking visionary sees this or that appearance from the spiritual world, while the thinking clairvoyant sees it a little later. The moment they see it, it has already been grasped by his or her thinking. At this point, he or she can differentiate and know whether it is truth or untruth. They see it slightly later. 
The revelation from the spiritual world approaches, however, slightly later and in a pre-thought-steeped form that allows the beholder to differentiate between reality and delusion. In other words, she or he possesses something that predates what they see. This is received at the same time as the non-thinking clairvoyant, but is perceived fractionally later. When it is seen, the vision is already infused with thought and judicious appraisal, which enables the beholder to discriminate clearly between apparitions reflecting their subjective wishes and objective veracity. This is the difference between subjective experiences. The non-thinking visionary sees immediately, the thinker slightly later. The vision remains the same as first seen for the non-thinker. However, the thinker will be capable of sequencing and contextualizing it within what she or he knows of the ordinary physical world. The two can be properly brought into relation with each other. After all, the physical world is itself a manifestation of the spiritual world. From this you can see that if you approach the spiritual world equipped with the instrument of your thought-creating reflective ability, you will be vouchsafed certainty in your judgment of that world. To this we can add, one might argue about the value of communications from the spiritual world if one has not seen or heard them oneself. To these two opposing situations mentioned, let us add a non-clairvoyant third possibility. Someone who hears the results of spiritual research that has been gained by way of clear thinking combined with clairvoyant seership. That person absorbs these facts from the spiritual world and understands them to be sensible. The seer, capable of thinking, has them too, as does every thinking person who has grasped them, however unconscious they may be of having done so. They by no means need to be clairvoyant themselves, and yet they can absorb the full value of the content of what is communicated to them. There is a difference between having something and being aware of what one has. It is not difficult to appreciate the difference between a non-seeing spiritual student and a clairvoyant. Imagine now that you were to be in line for an inheritance, but did not yet know about it. It would be of the same equitable value to you today, whether you knew about it or not. You might only hear of its existence later, yet its value would remain the same. It is just like this for the person experiencing facts about the spiritual world through anthroposophy. If sensibly seized upon, these facts now remain in their possession and they can await such time as they will themselves become sufficiently conscious of them, bearing in mind, nevertheless, that hearing them is by no means the same as oneself being in possession of first-hand facts. This becomes especially apparent after death. What is of more use to human beings, if I may use the trivial word use by way of clarification, having visions in a state of thoughtlessness or receiving without seeing them in vision purely spiritual communications? One might easily think that seeing visions would be a better preparation for death than merely hearing facts derived from the spiritual world. And yet, after death, 
it is of little use to human beings what they have seen by way of visions. But with facts, on the other hand, one is immediately able to set to work to make them one's own, if one has grasped them in a sensibly thoughtful way. What is valuable after death is precisely what one has understood, regardless of whether it has been seen in visionary form or not. Taking even the most profoundly initiated, they can see this entire spiritual world, but the significance of this is no whit increased if they are not capable of expressing their findings in terms of clear human concepts. After death, the only things that will help them are the concepts they have formed here on earth. These are the seeds for life after death. Of course, if one is a clairvoyant and simultaneously a clear thinker, one can usefully share the fruits conferred by vision. However, after death, two non-thinking people, of whom one is clairvoyant and the other only hears what his peer is seeing, find themselves in the identical situation, because what we take into our life after death is precisely what we have struggled to master through our own incisive thinking. This ascends as a seed rather than as something we extract from the worlds into which we now go. We receive what we do from spiritual worlds, not as a free gift simply to facilitate a more comfortable existence once we leave our earthly abode, but so that we convert it into earthly currency. To the extent that we have effected this conversion into earthly currency, are we helped after death? That is the essential point here. Such are connections after death. On the physical plane, the relative position of a clairvoyant to a thinking clairvoyant is similar. It is certainly wonderfully instructive to gaze into spiritual realms. But we must nevertheless discern whether such a person is merely looking at these realms in vision, regardless of the fact that without penetrating through the visions with their thinking, they have no defense against delusion. There is no other defense against illusion than clearly thinking through what has been seen. Even apart from this, let us assume that a visionary sees this or that, how she or he sees it. This can be deduced from their descriptions. It will still be imbued with elements of the physical plane. Has anyone ever described to you an angel that bears no features reminiscent of the physical world? It has wings, but then birds also have wings. It has a human upper body, in common with every person on earth. Admittedly, some of the things related may not be constituted quite as on earth, though elements may still be present and images can invariably and justifiably be related to the physical. But you will note that pictures such as these retain a terrestrial imprint. The shapes and images resembling their physical counterparts as seen in many a vision, do not belong to the spiritual world, but are merely symbolizations or parables of the spiritual world couched in terms of the physical world. I have set this out clearly in the book titled Occult Science and Outline. There I argue that modern clairvoyance must restrict its graphic, image-forming ability to its pre-development stage, but that it cannot remain static here but must press onward to a point where even the last vestige of earthly images is discarded.
There is, however, a certain danger to the seer once he or she has shed these last remnants. Seeing, for example, an angel, after having dispensed with all earthly parallels, there is a danger of seeing nothing at all. When, leaving behind all earthly images transposed into the spiritual, there is a real danger that nothing more can be seen. What then prevents one from losing all sight on entering the spiritual world proper is the seed that can arise from active thinking. Thought lends its substance to grasping what exists in spiritual worlds. We gain the ability to really live in the spiritual world by equally really grasping in our sense world what is no longer shot through with sensory elements, that is, solely and uniquely our thinking. We cannot take anything with us into the spiritual world other than our thinking. For example, think of a circle, but without the chalk that drew it, solely the thought of the circle. You can ascend to spiritual worlds in this way, but you may not bring anything of the image with you. I can now explain more fully the subjective process outlined earlier. Let us assume that again a monstrance cross is seen in vision. Let me characterize the two clairvoyants, one visionary, one also a thinker, by assuming one of them sees the vision here, A, there's a picture, while the other, the thinker, only sees it here, at B. The thinker only becomes aware of the visionary image from here, B, onward. Yet, he or she apprehends it simultaneously with thinking and can permeate it with thought. At the very moment when the thinking seer permeates the image with thought, it becomes unclear for the visionary seer, here at B, where it becomes dark and hazy and only reappears after a while. At the very point where image and thought can unite, it becomes dark for the visionary, who is never in a position to bind thought with image. For this reason, he or she never has the experience, you were there with your eye. Capital. So, this remains an experience inaccessible to the merely visionary seer. All this goes into the matter in a somewhat more detailed way. It is extremely important to bear all this in mind and to realize how vital it is to train one's thinking to overcome its inherent indolence that causes one to avoid the effort of attaining cognitive knowledge. It is a thousand times better to have encompassed spiritual imaginations in thinking and then sooner or later, each according to their karma, to raise oneself by one's own efforts to spiritual realms than to see immediately but to fail to process this vision through thinking, all of which has often been reiterated in the movement known as anthroposophy. It really is a thousand times more preferable to gain knowledge of spiritual science without seeing anything, than to see all sorts of things without the opportunity to penetrate them with incisive thought, because this is how they are compromised by uncertainty and instability. You can express this with even more precision by saying at present there are clear thinkers with sensible insight into the spiritual scientific worldview. Why is it that these are the very ones who find it so hard to become clairvoyant? 
it is comparatively easy for non-thinkers to have a measure of visionary clairvoyance, which easily inclines them to arrogance when faced with thinking, whereas it is relatively hard for thinkers to become clairvoyant. This is the very cliff edge at which a certain veiled disdain sets in. There is hardly anything that feeds arrogance as readily as clairvoyance unillumined by thinking. And it is so dangerous for the reason that such a clairvoyant generally has no idea that they are arrogant, instead deeming themselves humble. They lack the means to determine how colossally conceited it is to hold others' thinking efforts in such low esteem, while placing the greatest importance on a certain inspired quality. This is the seed of monstrous, masked arrogance. The question now is, why is it that, as experience teaches, it is so exceptionally difficult for some thinkers to also become seers? This is connected with an important fact. What we call the human power of differentiation, of judgment, that very capacity for logical thinking cultivated by thinkers, causes a definite modification of the entire structure of the brain. The physical instrument of one's brain is altered by astute thinking. Physical research is largely ignorant of this, but it is nevertheless the case. A brain used by a clear thinker looks different from that of a non-thinker. Being clairvoyant alters this fact little. A non-thinker's brain has complex crenulations or folds, whereas that of a developed thinker is relatively less complex and has fewer folds. Thinking is expressed in such simplification of brain gyri or folds, but science is unaware of this. Clear thinking can survey in broad overview rather than involve itself in analysis, hence the greater simplification in the brain of a stringent thinker. Where physical research has accustomed itself to testing thinking under physical conditions, it is soon apparent that physical research confirms what spiritual science states. In examining the brain of Mendeleev, to whom science attributes the establishment of the periodic system of elements, the truth of what spiritual science says is attested. The gyri, or ridges, of his brain are simplified. He possessed thinking that was, within certain limits, comprehensive, and the physical evidence of this is entirely congruent with what I said. This is not a particularly valuable fact, and is just mentioned in passing. So, as I say, changes to the instrument of thinking are evident. These changes call on us to focus on the activity of thinking itself. Nobody is born with all the faculties they may later possess, though they perhaps retain related tendencies. These have to be nurtured and developed so that changes to the brain do indeed take place throughout life. The tool of clear thinking has undergone a metamorphosis throughout a life of thinking and is then changed from its earlier condition. The fact is that our ether body, which has to be loosened from our physical brain to enable clairvoyant vision, is bound to this physical brain through our activity as thinkers. 
the work of thinking binds our ether body firmly to our physical brain. If someone, through their karma, does not yet have the strength to loosen their ether body in a timely way, then it may be that they are unable to have much by way of clairvoyant experience during this incarnation. Let us assume that it may have been their karma to be a very clear thinker in their last incarnation. This time, their thinking will not engage their ether body so strongly with their physical brain, and they will be able to loosen their ether body relatively easily, precisely because this thought-filled element is the best possible seed for their ascent into spiritual regions and for spiritual research. They must, of course, first have disengaged their ether body from their brain. However, if their brain has become so enmeshed with their ether body due to the incisive chiseling or chasing in effects of thinking to the point that it is exhausted, karma may make them wait a long time before that ether body can once more be loosened. If they then ascend to the spirit again, they will have done so via logical thinking. It has not been lost. Nobody can take away from them this advantage won by their own efforts. This is immensely important because clairvoyance can be lost at any time. I will draw your attention again to the fact that in ancient times you were all clairvoyant. Why do you no longer possess this faculty? Because in those ancient times you were not bound to earthly existence, but were unattached and translocated into spiritual worlds. You had not drawn this world down to the level of your capabilities, your clairvoyance having rested upon translocation. This is what we need to keep in mind. These are the kind of subtleties we should inscribe into our souls. We must be clear that today genuine occult science has the task of conveying the results of clairvoyant spiritual research that is suffused with thought for the purpose of always clothing these spiritual results in such a way that non-clairvoyant people can readily grasp them through their own thinking. For this they first need to be attached to thinking, hence the difficulty in contrast with old books that treat of revelations from the spiritual world. If you read these ancient books, you will, if you approach them in the manner of the modern spiritual scientist, notice something missing. You may find many an excellent revelation in these ancient tomes, but the modern person will not be able to make much sense of all this unless he or she is clairvoyant and can properly contextualize such material. However, what spiritual science offers can be processed by each person willing to expend some effort on the task because they can infuse it with elements rested through physical earthly thinking, because we grasp concepts that pertain both here and in the spiritual world. Modern natural science speaks of evolution, and spiritual science speaks of evolution too. Once you have understood the concept of evolution, you can understand what spiritual science has to convey. You can have a concept of karma, because you can create a thought fashioned picture for yourself. Granted, you can simply say to yourself, as many a theosophist does, every spiritual cause has a spiritual effect and this constitutes karma. But then you will have no genuine concept of karma. 
You can also observe the concept of cause and effect by watching billiard balls, but this is a false comparison with karma. Try taking an iron ball and throwing it into a barrel of cold water. If the ball is cold, the water remains just as it was. If, on the other hand, you heat the iron ball and then throw it into the barrel, the water will become warmer. As a result of an event, such as that of the iron ball, the water is warmed. This is comparable with karma inasmuch as a subsequent situation is affected by an earlier event. For reasons such as this, we must be absolutely clear that anyone who processes the facts of the spiritual world with their own thinking can also communicate those facts in such a way that anyone who has acquired their thinking here on the physical plane can utilize that thinking on subjects conveyed from the spiritual world. They will be able to understand them. We should all take this to heart. We should all understand that it is not just a matter of receiving communications from the spiritual world, but that everything depends on whether we receive them in a manner compatible with our present earthly circumstances. Each individual needs to take care that they receive such communications from spiritual realms in no other way. Admittedly, the slothful wish simply to believe what you hear is always present, but this is extremely awful and dire. If someone just wants to believe something, it is almost like wanting to be told that light exists when in fact what they need is a light bulb to illuminate a room. They need a light bulb and belief will help them not one jot. It is therefore important to seize hold of the means, the means of reflecting conscientiously and thoroughly, so that these means represent our initial method of gathering what spiritual science communicates from higher realms. Research of this realm can only be carried out once the requisite faculties have been developed, but grasping what has thus been researched is viable for every person willing to receive it in the right way. If one thinks in this way, the dangers that are otherwise associated with the anthroposophical movement can be more or less avoided. These dangers, however, assert themselves instantly when people start seeing clairvoyantly without ensuring that they simultaneously enrich knowledge by means of their own thinking. Many have this greed simply to snatch something from the spiritual world without painstakingly proceeding with the thinking that must be mastered here in the physical world. No god can conceive of the world in thought form unless they are incarnated on our physical earth. They can do this in other forms, but to comprehend our world through thinking can only be achieved here when incarnated. Bearing this in mind, every individual needs to be absolutely clear that dangers are attached to clairvoyance not rightly used. Whoever develops clairvoyance without using it rightly remains at an astral level, fails to bring the experience down to the physical level, cuts themselves off from the prospect of convincing others and creates a dangerous abyss between their vision and physical reality. Let us assume that someone has significant visions on the astral plane. These could be quite real, as far as anyone is concerned. 
and could also occur in non-thinking visionaries. Yet what now happens is that between them and the physical plane an abyss opens up. Imagine that this cloth is the physical plane. The visionary seer is standing on the edge of it. He or she sees their visions. The authentic spiritual world lies beyond the physical world, which is maya or illusory semblance. This physical plane cannot be removed by the visionary seer. It disappears only for the individual able to remove it by means of their thinking. This is the only way to penetrate beyond the physical plane, by understanding it with your thinking vision. Otherwise the physical plane is present, but you do not see the spiritual world, the genuine spiritual world. This is when the abyss opens up and the physical plane remains present as illusory maya. This inability to penetrate through physical levels lies in the fact that the brain is unable to switch itself off. If you have learned to think properly, you have no immediate need for your brain. Whilst thinking requires the workings of the brain, thinking activity does not require direct use of the brain. It is nonsense to claim that the brain thinks. I once went for a walk with a young man some thirty-five years ago who was studying and who was well on the way to becoming a complete materialist. He said, when I think, my cranial atoms swoop around and every thought has a definite shape. He opined that it was quite ludicrous to assume the existence of something like a soul which might be doing the thinking, as it was the brain itself doing this. I said to him, tell me then, why are you so dishonest as to say, I think? If that is the case, you would need to say, my brain is thinking. You would also need to claim that your brain is eating, your brain is seeing the sun. That would be more truthful. People like that would soon see what nonsense they carry around with them. It is not the brain that does the thinking. As I said, this can be explained by all sorts of trivial examples, if one is not a thoroughgoing, modern materialist. Thought-filled activity is not directly dependent upon the brain as its tool. Where thinking has become pure, one's brain does not participate. It is only involved in the activity of symbolizing, of symbol-creating. Imagine a chalk circle. This takes place in your brain. However, if you imagine a pure symbol-free circle, the circle itself is the active ingredient and is only then conceptualized by the brain. When people have clairvoyant visions, they remain in their ether bodies and do not even reach their physical brains. One can spend one's entire life in visionary states without one's brain evolving. One's ether body will be elaborated, but not one's brain. Nor can one bestride the abyss in this way, because maya has not been thoroughly transformed. This can only be achieved by penetrating it with thinking. Those who despise proceeding through thinking will only evolve faculties that are unable to grasp their object, that do not advance with any real grip, as it were, on the spiritual world proper. As a consequence of this, a disparity arises between what is developing in their ether body and their essential nature as a human being. There is complete misalignment here. 
Those visionary faculties are incompatible with the brain. The brain is coarse, because the person concerned has not taken the trouble to ennoble their brain through thinking. A hindrance takes shape that blocks the person in their attempt to reach real spirituality with their vision. They take leave of reality instead of advancing toward it. This destroys all chance of evaluating the suprasensory world. Someone of this kind may see all manner of things, but it will never be guaranteed that what they see corresponds with reality. Only someone capable of discriminating between reality and mere vision will be able to test the veracity of such visions. Only mature discrimination will be able to do this. Without this, no vision can be properly tested against reality. Real discernment can only be acquired through working on the physical plane. That is why one remains floating without foundation if one scorns the, albeit laborious, work of grappling with thinking. We must really take this to heart. Then the same problems will not arise again and again and those who develop visionary clairvoyance will not remain within their dreams by erecting a barrier against reality. This is synonymous with losing one's way in the physical world or with not being in one's right mind. Sober-mindedness can be achieved by working at the one and only site where sobriety prevails, in clear thinking, on the physical plane. In scorning the acquisition of a rigorous mode of thinking, one consigns oneself to drifting around in error. Clarity is what we must actively wrest for ourselves if the anthroposophical movement is not to suffer by being linked with such error. Whoever wishes to exercise blind faith in receiving information from the spiritual worlds on the authority of another without exercising their own rational thinking does something that may be comfortable but which contains a danger. If instead of independently assessing and thinking through material transmitted by another's vision one simply takes for granted on faith what someone else relates, one potentially harms the anthroposophical movement. Needless to say, nobody should be scared off from becoming involved in this movement. Yet it can indeed happen that people of blind faith can lose themselves and are no longer capable of distinguishing between truth and lies. Nothing allows mendacity to thrive more than visionary clairvoyance that is not challenged and reined in by thinking. On the contrary, such loose visioning can nurture quite a different tendency namely a certain high-handed arrogance that can extend to delusions of superiority and megalomania. This is all the more dangerous for going unnoticed. The danger is very great of considering oneself superior on account of seeing things which others do not see. It is not normally apparent just how deep-seated this tendency bordering on megalomania may be rooted in a soul. Much self-importance is concealed behind unconditionally asserted certainties that swear by their authenticity, brooking no argument, so that people can be led to believe the most idiotic things on the basis that they originate in the astral plane. Anything similar 
claimed on the basis of the physical world would be dismissed out of hand, but because it claims astral origin it is slavishly believed. In breaking with this habit one can save oneself from falling for every sort of swindle or deceit. Yet this does happen when one fails by only seeking cozy opinions to nurture an instinct for rigorous scrutiny. We should not make light of this. We must recognize that it is one of humanity's most sacred privileges to come to our own conclusions. If we appreciate this, we will spare no effort in really working at this capacity instead of just listening to sensational communications. There is a wealth of communication from the spiritual world, but it is essential we develop the appropriate attitude, the right means of visualizing and behave accordingly. This is what I wished to express today, not just to exhort you to in the manner of a sermon, but to express it with due reasoning. That is why it may have been rather more taxing on our thinking, on our ability to think in parallel, alongside. I always try through my methods to adhere to what is rightly to be expected of a spiritual movement. Many would prefer soothing exhortations. I refrain from supplying these I try to present things so that they are capable of being clothed in real thought. When issues of a physical nature are expounded, as so often today, it can be hard mental work because they are not as sensational nor as pleasant as those of higher worlds and yet they are incredibly important. You will not underestimate the importance of this hard mental work if you tell yourself if what must happen in future really does take place that in their next incarnation sufficiently large numbers of people incarnate who remember this present incarnation, then provision must be made in advance of such times. So do develop your powers of discrimination and you will be candidates for self-remembrance in your future incarnation. Make sure that you are able to follow world events with clarity of thought. Because however much you may see of a visionary nature, it will be of no help to you in looking back to the present in future incarnations. Anthroposophy is here to help prepare for all necessary eventualities. That there are sufficient numbers of people who are capable of looking back at this incarnation on the basis of their own knowledge. How many do in fact in this incarnation accompany their understanding of spiritual science with any clairvoyant ability? This is a matter of individual karma. Undoubtedly many are sitting here whose karma it is not to penetrate clairvoyantly beyond this world. But everyone who is prepared to secure what is offered by genuine spiritual science as presented in the form of thinking will in their next incarnation reap the fruits of having secured a sound basis for their thinking now. Human beings can, as it were, be seers without being aware of this, and those who study anthroposophy methodically have this potential, and in that sense can wait until such time as karma allows them to see through to reality. The end of Lecture 6